All right, I was uh, in the back pumping those kids up for children's church because I'm not in charge of it. And so uh, I was like, grab a donut on the way out. Miss Jennifer loves that. So uh, we're excited that you're here with us this morning. Um, this morning, we're going to start off with our um, dwelling in the Word passage. And Miles has that ready for us. And it reads, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister, whom they have seen, cannot love God, whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. So this morning, we are back into our series on beautiful fences, about ancient promises in a modern world still hold true today. And before we jump into the sermon, I want to tell a story about the last time that the Kittingers were in California. We went to California right at the beginning of 2020, and I would encourage you that if you're looking to go to a theme park, go pre-world pandemic. It was awesome. We were getting on rides at Disneyland. They, Isla and I just rode the teacups over and over and over again at the Pirates of the Caribbean. They were like, just jump on a boat. Nobody's here. And we were just like, this is awesome. We should do this every year right now before a pandemic hits. But we were in California. We were there for, I think, a week and a half. And uh, towards the end of the the trip that we were on, we were in Newport Beach, which is one of my favorite places in this world because there is a a frozen banana stand, guys, that you just have to visit. It's awesome, life-changing. I think about it quite a bit. But we had gone to this frozen banana stand, got them dipped in chocolate, sprinkles, the works, and then we spent the rest of the day at the beach. And it was just one of those, like, surreal days where you're just, like, having fun and not worrying about anything and just eating bananas. And we let the kids play in the beach, and then if you've, you know, traveled with kids, you're at that point where, you know, their swimming clothes are all wet, you know that you're going to the hotel after it, so we just did what kind of what most parents would do, and kind of got Judah completely dry and put him in some underwear, and then we started driving to the hotel. So it was kind of later in the day, we arrive at the hotel, and if you've been in these situations before, and if we're honest, men, when, when people are talking to us, sometimes we don't always listen. And so often when we say there was a miscommunication, we mean is I wasn't listening the way that I should have listened, but there was a miscommunication. And so when Whitney and I are getting the stuff out of the car, I believe that Whitney was watching Judah and Whitney believed that I was watching Judah. So again, there's that, that masculine miscommunication that we're all familiar with. And so what, what happens is we start unloading our stuff. We've got sweet baby Isla with us, and we're getting all that stuff together. And then there's this moment where we both recognize that we no longer have the same amount of kids that we had moments ago. And we're, we're in L.A. Like, we, we're in this massive city. We don't know anybody. We're just on, on vacation. And we look around, and we're like, oh, my goodness, where, where's Judah? And, and we start panicking. And there's that, like, I can see the fear in Whitney's face. I can see the, the fear, you know, kind of in probably my reflection. I should have seen the fear in my face of both not listening as well as losing the kid. But 
we, we start panicking, and we're in a parking garage, and we're, we're both, like, Whitney's running to one side of the parking garage, and then she comes back to stay with Isla, and then I go to another side of the parking garage, and we're just scrambling, trying to find Judah. And finally, an employee just walks up to us and said, hey, are you looking for a kid in underwear? And we were like, we are. Um, have you seen him? And he goes, yeah, he's, he's been riding the elevator. And like Judah had just apparently just been hanging out in the elevator of this hotel, not at all aware that both of his parents were terrified and worried and afraid. And if you've ever been in a situation like that, where you lose something or you lose a kid for a little bit, you've probably said some form or fashion of this phrase, like, don't ever leave my side again. Now, he's, he's done it before. You know, he's done it again. He'll do it again. But that, in that moment, that feeling of like, don't leave my side, hit home differently. Because I thought I lost a kid. A kid running around in underwear at a random hotel in L.A. But that, that sentiment of don't leave my side is one that I believe that we should also have with Scripture. See, I think in, in our society and in our world that we live in, Scripture often is viewed as outdated, irrelevant. It's old. It, the, the meanings of the Bible cannot possibly have the meanings today as they once did. But there's a reason why we should not let Scripture leave our side. It's because God is still speaking through Scripture. We just have to be active participants with it. The sentiment is one that you see really drive, driven home with the Jewish faith. And we've got that passage there, Miles, in Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is a, a very famous and popular passage that has a lot of weight in the Jewish faith, the Jewish community, and it's the Shema. It reads, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses. Now, before we, we go too deep, I want to break this apart just a little bit, because you're going to see in just a little bit where Jesus references the Shema in one of his kind of more popular passages as well. But what you're seeing here is this full kind of encapsulation of Scripture working through your life, your lives. This, this movement, this activity, this, I guess it's, the Scripture's alive in this way. You're not just reading it, you're participating, you're walking alongside it. And it's moving you and changing you and challenging you. If you're entering Scripture this way, it's going to have that type of impact on your life. You see this in verse 7, impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. It's this every part of your existence is immersed within Scripture and how God is speaking through that Scripture. Now, in the specific elements of verse 8, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. I think we have a few pictures there. This is actually something that you will see today still. It's this idea of tefillin. And what you do with tefillin is it's a leather strap. It's got a box um, that is going to be kosher as well. But what you're going to do in a very methodical sense is you're going to wrap this leather strap around your arm. You're going to put the box probably close to your bicep. Um, hopefully your bicep's a little bit bigger than mine, but you're going to put it close to your bicep. And then the next one, Miles, we've got that. You can kind of see the full element of it, of it tied around your head as well. And then I think there's one more picture, and that's a mezuzah. That's going to be on a door frame often. But in these particular elements that is referenced here in Deuteronomy, you're going to have a few passages 
encapsulated within this box. You've got basically two Exodus passages and two Shema passages. Uh, The one that we read is often in there, as well as Deuteronomy chapter 11, and we've got that too, Miles. Be careful or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you and he will shut up the heavens so that it will not rain and the ground will yield no produce and you will soon perish from the good land that the Lord is giving you. Fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Teach them to your children, talking about them. When you sit down at home, very similar to the Deuteronomy 6 passages, write them on your door frames of your houses and on your gates so that your days and your days of your children may be many in the land of the Lord swore to give your ancestors as many as the days that the heavens are above the earth. So you're seeing this idea that Scripture is something that you don't just, you know, like have dust on your cabinet or your shelf or whatever. It's something that you're walking alongside. You're entering into. It's a part of your entire existence. And as parents, the command here is that, that your study of Scripture overflows into the lives of your children so that it impacts them the same way that Scripture has impacted you. I mentioned just a second ago that Jesus talks about this. In Matthew chapter 22, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That Shema passage. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now Jesus obviously shortens it. He paraphrases it a little bit. But the sentiment is still there. The importance of the Shema. The importance of Scripture being a part of everything that you do. How you think. How you live. How you love. How you treat people. If you are immersed within Scripture, it changes you. It affects the way that you see people. It affects the way that you treat your neighbor, maybe the employee at the restaurant. It changes every part of you because that is the purpose of Scripture. It's a living document meant and intended to change us for the better. When I talked about a little bit a moment ago that how often Scripture now is looked at as outdated, it's irrelevant. There's no longer the necessity to, to dive into Scripture and study it to examine our lives as it once was. And I think that's because people are searching for truth in different areas of life. I don't know about you, and hopefully you're not doing this, but hopefully you're not logging into Twitter and like, let me figure out truth. If you're doing that, I'm praying for you. But my point in that kind of joke there is the fact that like often we we search for truth in different areas of life. Maybe that is through the internet. Maybe that's through relationships or experiences. We're, We're searching for truth in so many different ways and areas, but our starting point for truth should be scripture. I thought a lot about the the book of Job recently. It's all about suffering and pain and trusting God through difficult and challenging circumstances. If you're familiar with the story of Job, Job is a good and honest man. He loves God. He trusts God. He's committed to God. And there's this, this strange arrangement that happens where Job's faith is tested And everything that Job loves is taken away from him. One thing after another after another. He's basically left with with nothing. When he's in this moment of despair, this really kind of beautiful thing happens that his friends show up 
And they do this thing called sitting Shiva, which is where you're going to sit silently for about seven days with somebody after they mourn. But then after the seven days, you can kind of open dialogue and converse and share thoughts and opinions about what's going on. And so in Job chapter 33, that's exactly what happens. And I'm going to use the message because I love how Eugene Peterson translates this passage. But this is um, Elihu rebukes Job at this point in the story. And he says this, But let me tell you, Job, that you're wrong, dead wrong. God is far greater than any human. So how dare you haul him into court and then complain that he won't answer your charges? God always answers one way or another, even when people don't recognize his presence. I love the way that this passage reminds us of it's so important where we're searching for truth. There's a lot of areas in our life, in our world, that we can try to find truth. But hopefully you're constantly being redirected to the truth that's based in Scripture. And where God is living and God is moving and God is changing us. When Jesus says this in John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This, this quote from Jesus reminded me of when I was in my master's at Lipscomb. I had this professor named Dr. Fortner. And I, some of you may be familiar with Dr. Fortner, but he, he taught Hebrew at Harding, and then he moved to Lipscomb, and he taught Hebrew at, at Lipscomb, at Harding, and then he moved to Lipscomb. We taught Hebrew there as well. At Harding, I thought I avoided the guy. I took Greek. It's a humble brag, but I took Greek. I didn't take Hebrew. But then Lipscomb changed this degree requirement where you had to have two semesters of Hebrew, and all of a sudden, the person I was the most afraid of, Dr. Fortner, was right back in the forefront of my life. So I'm at Lipscomb, I'm trying to graduate, but I've got to take two semesters of Hebrew. And guys, this class destroyed me. It was the hardest class that I think I've ever taken in my life. I couldn't do it. It was just hard. Every element of it was challenging and painful. You're in this, this big classroom with all these other people that were also in pain and challenged with this scripture. And what was awesome about Dr. Fortner was that he would say, when I would get so nervous about reciting a passage or doing a translation, he would say, Bryce, no one else is paying attention to you because they're afraid I'm going to call on them next. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, that makes so much sense. And it brings me so much joy to think everyone else is as afraid as I am of Dr. Fortner. But in that class, I learned this lesson that I'm never going to learn Hebrew unless I study Hebrew. And it's the same sentiment that we see here in Scripture. If we want our lives to mirror Jesus, if we want to be the example of Christ in our lives, we have to study the stories of Jesus. It's not just going to happen by happenstance. We're not one day just going to wake up and all of a sudden we're like, I know Hebrew now. That's not how it works. I have to spend time in the Word. I have to spend time doing vocabulary, learning verses, learning the, the way that the words are written. You have to spend time within Scripture. Otherwise, it's not going to change you. You're just going to have a book with words on it. It's the same thing with relationships. If you're in a relationship and you want that relationship to grow and to be something amazing and beautiful, it's not going to just happen. It's not going to happen by just simply being there, existing, You've got to nourish that relationship. You have to participate within that relationship. Communicate, listen, hear, and learn where that relationship is going. If you do those things, you'll grow. But it's not going to happen by just letting the book sit there. Paul has this passage in 1 Thessalonians that I love, that I'm challenged by a lot. 
Because if you're kind of hearing where I'm going with this, it's this idea that Scripture is alive. Scripture is a a living document intended to change us, to move us, to help us grow. But it also requires active participation in that relationship. Paul writes this to the uh, the church of Thessalonica, You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. We also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe, 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 believe. There's something that is powerful here about what Paul is leading the church of Thessalonica into. Because all of a sudden, when we recognize and we accept the fact that Scripture is alive, that Scripture is at work within us, if we participate in it, it can change the way that we think. It changes the way that we grow, the way that we look at people, the way that we treat people, as I've already said. But doing that means spending time within Scripture. The last passage that I want to look at is from Hebrews. In Hebrews 4, is this challenging passage. If you've ever been in like a locker room, you see this passage on there. You know, iron, uh, sharper, than a dev- uh, sharper than a double-edged sword. You, you get this kind of element of like, this is going to be great on a mug, right? Or maybe a t-shirt or, or whatever. But in Hebrews chapter 4, it reads, For the word of God is alive and active. You see that, that same sentiment that you see in First Thessalonians. It's not just a, a book with words on it. It's a living document that has the ability to change us and move us. For the, Lord, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, forever, when I read that passage... I looked at like, I'm about to knock some fools down, right? We read that as like an offensive passage where we're going to use Scripture to just combat the world and let people know, I've got this double-edged sword and it's coming for you. And I'm saying like, that's how I have read that passage for a long time. But that's not who the passage is directed to, is it? Like that passage in Hebrews chapter 4 is directed towards us and our hearts. The, the action that we see here is not directed towards other people or people that we think are, are in the wrong or people that we want to say, hey, this Bible verse means that you're going to hell or this Bible verse means that you've got to change everything about who you are. What this Bible verse is about is about us and how God is working in our hearts to change us, to make us new. So when you read it like that, this idea of sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. That, that surgical precision that we see in this passage isn't meant for others, it's meant for us. And that's why I've tried to drive home this idea of how Scripture changes us if we spend time within it. And how God is still trying to speak through Scripture. But we have to be willing to participate with that. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. 
So we do it for the ministry of the Word because God meets us in the Word, and the Holy Spirit works powerfully through the Word of God. The spiritual work of God's Word goes far beyond the basic educational value of learning the Bible. Yes, we need to study it, but we also need to be transformed by it and allow God to speak through Scripture. Because, guys, the Bible still speaks. We just have to be willing to listen to it and respond to it. So this week, I hope that you spend time in Scripture. If it's been a long time since you've really maybe done a Bible study, I would encourage you to start in the book of Mark. Mark is a fast-paced gospel story where you just start to see a lot of the things that Jesus is doing in his early ministry. And let that scripture speak to you. Ask yourself, why is God pulling on my heart strings when Jesus is serving the poor? Or why, is, why do I feel something like I should be doing something when Jesus is working with the widows? Look at those passages and see where is God leading you in your life? Because God is speaking through scripture. We just have to be willing to listen and answer and respond to it. Let's stand and sing together.